Welcome to the Hedge for Humanity podcast, where we explore innovative ideas and the forward-thinking people behind them. In this episode, Brandon Veneta speaks with Floyd Marinescu. Floyd is the CEO and co-founder of C4 Media, which provides software development news to over 1.2 million people, as well as live conferences throughout the year. He helps curate the CEOs for Basic Income Movement in Canada and founded the nonprofit UBI Works, aimed at educating and promoting universal basic income. Among other things, Floyd talks about UBI from the perspective of business owners, why it is a politically agnostic idea, and the benefits of running companies remotely in the digital age. Thanks and hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Hedge for Humanity podcast. Um, This is such a huge uh, honor to have uh, Floyd as our guest. Um, We were introduced about a year ago uh, and and through Andrew Yang's connection and uh, just learned more about what he's about and, and the projects that he's involved with and for him to take some time to share his knowledge and passions with our community is, is such an honor. So we'd love to, to make an introduction uh, to Floyd Marinescu here. It's great to be here. Cool. Well, uh, could we get a, a little bit about who you are, where you've come from, and, and what you've built um, in sure. your business career and personal life? Yeah. So I went to University of Waterloo for clients uh, back in the day. and. And somehow found myself in a career uh, building uh, developer communities. I ran a news website called theserverside.com, writing all news at some point, and later started my own business in uh, 2006, uh, running uh, infoq.com, which is a news website. Sebs, <laughs> infoq.com, which is a news website for software engineers and programmers, has over a million readers a month in five languages, and we also have a conference called QCon that runs in New York, San Francisco, London, Beijing, Shanghai, and Sao Paulo, serving about 7,000 software engineers a year with uh, amazing talks and content uh, presented by other fellow engineers working in cool companies. And our biggest one is in San Francisco every November with uh, 1,600 attendees and 150 speakers, all from kind of the Bay Area's best uh, best software shops. And, um, and uh, the company that runs it itself is fully remote uh, over uh, 50 people in 11 countries, um, all with a shared core values, shared purpose, shared mission. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to kind of create this new age sort of modern style of running a company, which has actually informed a lot of, of why I've, what brought me to basic income, the fact that companies can run this way. And uh, it's co- completely disrupting sort of the local economics of how people think uh, countries' economics are supposed to work. So that's a bit about me. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a few things that really impressed me as I, I learned more about your business um, is the remote um, like how you all interact with um, and, and you guys do like an annual um, like retreat or work session. Can you tell us a little bit about the core values of how you have engraved that at the foundation of your business and how you've seen it kind of flourish uh, into your employees and, and into your people that come around these conferences? Yeah. So I, 
I guess I'll talk to two things you mentioned, uh, the use of core values and also how, how we run remote. And uh, I guess third would be uh, uh, one of the meetings we do to foster culture. Well, firstly, uh, I mean, I won't talk too much about core values. This is an absolute must for any serious team or organization uh, that, that is more than like three people. We'll just start defining their core values. Uh, and those are the shoulds and shouldn'ts of any, any group. They're not your beliefs. Those should be a separate list if you want to list your beliefs. Like if, if you believe, uh, uh, well, anyway, that, but, but your core values are, are really just how, you, how we all understand what, does, what the shared sense of normal is in any group. Uh, one of the most useful benefits of the core values is using them for acknowledgments. So we have a culture internally where uh, in some of our internal, in our internal social network, we invite people to uh, acknowledge others when they see examples of the core values in action. We, we use the core values when, when we give praise, when we also give feedback, critical feedback. Um, and it, it really helps to kind of depersonalize sticky personal situations and, and put them in the context of sort of what our, our shared values are. And, um, and it it's also really makes it, yeah, it, it makes it easier to make tough decisions and also to validate good decisions like promotions and stuff. Um, so core values are really important. Uh, it's a very underutilized tool. They're not beliefs, right? Because um, we can have a company where people have all kinds of different uh, political backgrounds or, or views on things can work together because our, our values are the same, even if our beliefs are different. Beliefs should not really be a part of a corporate environment that let people mm -hmm. have the privacy of their own beliefs. Uh, but, but the values is different. That's, that's the behaviors. Um, so, so that's, that's a bit about core values. Uh, so we've ran remote, uh, for, since the beginning, before I started this business, I was lucky to be, um, a remote management team member of a U.S. based startup working from my dorm room in, in university of Waterloo in Canada and seeing that it's possible. So, you know, before even blogs existed or back when Skype was like, was, was what you used before Slack. Um, we ran remote. And uh, so before I started my company in 05, I read the book, The World is Flat. Um, and I thought, well, hell, if IBM and all these other countries, companies rather, can can hire all over the world, then, then so can I. <laughs> and uh, so when we started C4 Media, we uh, we just started right away. Like the, the, the three co-founders, one was um, a VP of sales based in San Francisco. There was me based in Toronto as the product content overall vision guy. And then we had a chief architect living in Romania. And then the very first employee we hired was a kid in China who, who just graduated. And we hired him because he wanted to have a Chinese version of our business up and running as soon as possible. So, so we, we were fully remote across continents from day one. And it, and it, was, it didn't matter where you live because when you're in using online, mainly online communications methods, it makes absolutely no difference where you live. And from that point of view, then you can leverage um, globalization to its best. And what I mean by that is there's certain roles that you can hire anywhere where literally you can you can pull from the world's best. The other worlds where you other roles where you want to hire specifically in say developing economies because uh, you can afford to hire more people that way because they're not necessarily specialized. And then you have that opportunity to do that. And uh, and and I found that it doesn't matter what country someone's from. We have people in 11 countries. We have the same core values. We have the same purpose. We have we use the same management tools, the same meeting structures. We don't outsource. We just hire all over the place. And whenever we have a new flag on the org chart, it makes me happy. So doing it this way has been great. It's uh, it, We have very low turnover. Like People don't leave. Um, it's cool to be part of this global group. Um, and we, then we have our... And we can afford to have twice the staff this way. So we have, you know, we have several in Canada, US, UK. Uh, we have a number in Romania. We have a number in Brazil. A uh, number of people in China who are now more of a partner org, used to be internal. And, uh, you know, we have uh, uh, South Africa, Ireland, uh, kind of all over the place, Barbados, Jordan, uh, you name it. It doesn't matter where they live as long as they can, um, their time zone is, is uh, suitable for whatever department they're in so they 
that can make the calls at a, at a reasonable hour and not make any life sacrifices because we don't expect anyone to take late night calls and stuff like that, at least not on the regular. Um, so yeah, so one of the tools we use to get the everyone engaged is an annual meeting. It's one of the few times when the entire company gets together. So every year we, we pick usually somewhere in Europe because it's sort of time zone central, at least uh, for flying and stuff. And uh, we have a, a four day agenda where we, you know, one day is department meetings, another day is, is cross company presentations. The third day is unconference where literally there's no agenda. People come up with their own topics in a bottom up fashion and we fill the, fill the day's agenda with stuff. And uh, that's my favorite day because you see what people come up with and it's not top down driven. And then the fourth day is sightseeing. So we just did one of those recently. And it's uh, one of the coolest coolest experiences in the year. It's like it's like the United Nations meets together to discuss uh, how to grow InfoQ and QCon. So that's a bit about how we run. That is amazing, man. And yeah, you were you you like are a pioneer in, in the crypto world. They call them DAOs, like decentralized organizations and the remote, depending on how you the terminology, but you like ran it way ahead of the curve of all these different tools now. And in like talking with my folks and other people, they they think it's uh, not possible to do so. It's like you go to an office space and waste time driving, blah blah blah. You know, it's like no, it actually works pretty darn well um, doing it, it this way, and it's very. It, it works well, but it, it's definitely not decentralized. It's distributed. There's still a a management layer. There's still a a planning process that follows. Uh, best practices, for example, from from uh, the book Scaling Up and stuff like that. There's still an executive team that makes the tough calls. So it's, it's certainly not decentralized, but it is distributed. Yeah, yeah, these, yeah, d- distributed for sure and, and how decisions are made and all that and communication. But you should be so proud of yourself of what you've built um, and, and the teams that you've uh, built around you. Like, cause I, you could just tell that there's a good good vibe coming from your organization. I would love to attend one of your conferences one of these days because um, you, you curate some really knowledgeable people too to share uh, their information. So um, with that, because you, 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 you said that through this process, you, you've come to the conclusion about how you got into UBI. Can you describe how all that uh, unfolded to where you're like, okay, UBI, is uh, a need. It's not going to be a luxury thing. It's like we are going to need this for humanity to really push forward into this next phase of of society. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a saying in a uh, sort of uh, Buddhism. There's many paths to the top of the mountain, and there were there are many paths that brought me to becoming a uh, CEO activist for for UBI and believing that this is something we absolutely need to do. Um, and uh, not only because we need to do it, but I mean, we, we could have done it and it's been an aspirational evolution of capitalism forever. Like even Milton Friedman was for it. So even before, even before automation, it was a thing. And even before globalization, uh, you know, has been disrupting local middle class, people like Martin Luther King were advocating for basic income. So, so I want to argue that the, the moral argument for it is very strong. It's just that it's more of an impending need now because of what's going on with the economy. Um, but uh, yeah, in my own personal experience, you know, I mean, I grew up in a house that had domestic violence. And uh, if my mom had money, she could have left or at least would have gotten more respects and, and uh, uh, just would have been a different power dynamic. You know, money in some ways is power. And or let me rephrase that. I mean, freedom. We talk a lot about freedom. Um, what does freedom mean? Like freedom of choice is irrelevant if you have no choices. 
You know, so I think freedom means options, having options in life. And that's what basic income is about, creating options for people, especially for those who have less options, perhaps because they were uh, finding, for whatever reason, whether they're born into it or, or they fall into it, you find yourself in a situation in life where you have fewer options. And if we can create a society that has real freedom and guarantees a minimum a minimum equality of opportunity, not of outcome, of opportunity um, through, the, through a basic income, we've guaranteed our personal freedoms. And, and those personal freedoms will trickle up, so to speak, at all levels of society. Because if you have a, a section of society that isn't afraid to make long-term decisions, they're going to vote smarter and they're not going to be tricked by, by charlatans and stuff. So I, I'm kind of going off, I'm digressing, but uh, my emotional kind of resonance when I first heard Elon Musk talk about it, yeah, when I first heard Elon Musk talk about it, although he was talking about automation, sort of in my heart, what was stirring was like, shit, how my family would have been different, uh, you know, if my mom had a basic income. Wow. Uh, so yeah. that's, um, that's one angle. And then, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I, I remember, uh, I didn't realize that about your, your journey, man. Um, that's a lot to go through for sure. And, and to see it from that lens. Um, I do remember when I was researching you, um, when we first, just so I knew a little more about, um, what you, what you got going on was in one of your podcasts, you mentioned, um, that you had like a, uh, rental property or something where you actually kind of received it. And that kind of gave you the, the risk taking like to go do and start up your business and all that. And I, that resonated so much with me. Um, when I heard that, cause I'm like, man, I would be doing what I'm doing if it wasn't for like, my wife is our income winner right now, you know, and I'm still just plugging away on this journey. Um, so that was, and, and I didn't realize the, the other side of this. So I, I have, man, that's, that's a lot to go through um, and, and really push for, for that side of it. Cause this could empower so many people if we do it right. And, and that freedom layer is like, what is freedom to people? You know, it's, and giving it's options. And like, I think there's a segment of society that has gotten tricked into believing that like paying taxes means you have no freedom. No, taxes is how you buy your freedom. Like <laughs> if you don't have taxes, you don't have freedom. It's actually the opposite. And uh, so, so if we can create more freedom in society for people, you know, through, through government as a distribution vehicle to make sure we all start with uh, a minimum viable amount of money every month. We're actually securing our freedoms for everyone and ensuring that power doesn't get too displaced towards private interests that could uh, be acting, you know, for acting against the interests of, of the majority. So, so you know, it's not about big government. It's about actually small government that is is redistributing in a way that that keeps people engaged politically and economically. Yeah, and, and so, feeling that. Yeah, so I guess the yeah. go go ahead. Sorry. So the other two paths past the to my sort of conclusion at UBI, one is you just mentioned. Yes, uh, uh, having been in raised very financially paranoid, um, I, I did uh, instead of uh, buying a lot of cool stuff for myself in my twenties when I went, when uh, did some startup stuff. I instead, I bought an income property and basically gave myself a basic income. And the uh, the confidence I got from that allowed me to then unlock my risk tolerance. And, uh, and then quit and start my own business, the one I'm running now. So I think UBI is actually a, an innovation strategy, sort of a decentralized bottom-up innovation strategy policy that, that governments can use if you want to unlock 
if you want to recapture the risk tolerance available in society, you have to make sure that people can take a long-term perspective and have the freedom to take risks. And no one's going to take a risk when, when they have to do two jobs to feed their kids. But people can take a risk when they know that, they have, that they'll have a guarantee of, of food or shelter or at least enough money to be able to get by in some, some way, shape, or form. And that's what that property did for me. It was like a huge sort of emotional release of, of, of fear. It was a broadening of, of perspectives that allowed me to just think more deeply about my future and what I really wanted to do. And, uh, and so that's something that we can all have. It's not, not expensive. So we, we should do it. We should do it now, even just from that own perspective, you know, capitalism generates wealth because of innovation. Innovation creates more products and services, solves human needs. And if you want to unlock entrepreneurs to, to create more wealth for society, you know, wealth is not just money and profits. Wealth is the, the services we create and the value that it adds to people's lives. And uh, so we need we need a better innovation policy, and basic income is is definitely one of those. Oh man! That, so that's, so that's so, one so path, good. and then the, uh, yeah, keep going. Yeah. And then the final path was my own experience in my business. And I'm like, hell, you know, my father and uncle lost their jobs in uh, automotive manufacturing after China entered the scene in the late '90s um, because nobody could compete. And then, as Andrew Yang often says. Even six times more jobs were lost due to automation than trade, which my dad confirms because he's like, yeah, the, the remaining tool shops he used to work with because he was an independent tool and die designer, uh, the ones that actually, the, the half that actually survived that, that, that carnage were the ones that automated because they could automate and become more productive and lower the prices. And, and the automation itself is also what's uh, caused six times more job losses. So I'm like, okay, so that happened to manufacturing. Globalization drove uh, a lot of job loss and automation did. And now the same thing is happening. It's been happening, in fact, for the last 20 years for all information jobs. Like not only blue-collar manufacturing, but any job that can be done on the Internet is now fully globalized, allowing a company like mine to exist where I can hire anywhere in the world and I take advantage of that. You know, so we, we, are, we are not in a – people are imagining a, a comp, country's economy as if it's a, a closed equilibrium system which is it's completely false because even even solopreneurs these days have virtual assistants in the Philippines for four bucks an hour. 20 years ago, they'd be hiring those assistants in their own city, probably paying them 15 at the minimum, if not more. So, so we are now, what we've done to manufacturing is now globalized to all roles that can be done online. So that's something that is, is frankly, I think is far more job displacing and far more putting a, a downward pressure on wages even than automation. And no one's talking about that. Absolutely nobody's even studied this, but I know it from my own lived experience. This is true. And like anyone, just, just pull up Upwork and go bid for a job and see what kinds of bids you get from all over the world. You'd have to have a really good reason to hire in your own, your own backyard if you just want to pay four times more. So yeah. th this is like globalization 2.0 is internet driven. It's not manufacturing driven. No one is still moving factories to China, but today they're, they're hiring office workers in Eastern Europe instead of locally and that is like I, it blows my mind that it's not being discussed more or studied more in academia like what's the impact of that uh, but that i think is a, a big reason why you see unemployment rates so low but wages aren't going high because there's too much global we're in a globalized economy now there's too much competition it's just why how could wages go high when you can hire anywhere for anything it, it just that's why we need basic income as another means because frankly the money is being made there's more profit being generated now than ever before the economy is bigger than now than ever before and as the uh, Federal Reserve Chairman mentioned recently to the Congress, 
this is not a hot job market because wages aren't going up. Wages aren't going up because we're in a globalized context. I think he's not ready to say that. So, <laughs> so more money is still being made, just not being made by the majority of listeners to this podcast. So I think basic income is how we can all get a, a piece of the action and ensure that capitalism is serving everyone's interests, not, not only a few. Yeah, I, I could go, man, that's a, that's a really well put way of coming to the conclusion of UBI from many different facets. Um, that can probably resonate with probably every one of our listeners in different ways. Um, because yeah, like from, for an example, from our, our side is um, we had a gal working with us from San Francisco and we had some UI design via Upwork and we paid like, we've been very frugal and like <laughs> budget friendly just to get this bootstrap. Um, she was like, that would be a few grand here in the, in San Francisco or whatever. And we're like, we got this for a couple hundred bucks. <laughs> so yeah, like, it, it exactly. is unbelievable Upwork and Fiverr, um, the different ways you can find service jobs and, and what they are bidding for. And, and they do a great job. They're super talented. And um, it's just a contract type scope of work that you give them in some cases. So um, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and so when, when you look at that, like what, what were the first steps to where you're like, okay, this is a massive problem. No one's talking about it. Um, Cause you, you've been involved with some really interesting projects and would love to hear how you've gotten engaged and pushed things forward um, from, from your side of things. Yeah. So Nick Hanauer has been a huge inspiration for me. He, he talks about progressive policy and economics from a, a very pro-capitalist point of view. And I remember him saying something like, uh, if you look at the share of national income, bottom half versus the top 1%, and just project that out a few decades, we'll, we'll get to a point where the top 1% are making 35 cents on every dollar, and the bottom half are making 6 cents on every dollar. And he's like, that's not capitalism anymore. That's feudalism. So when you think about that, it gives me chills. Yeah. Yeah, and it does. And globalization and automation, and I'll just say, let's just say technology is the reason. Because when we say globalization, it's still technology at the end of the day. It's, now it's internet-driven globalization. It, and it's still technology that allows you know, tankers to bring goods from China. It's all technology at the end of the day. You know, nobody could create a globalized supply chain for iPhones without the invention of modern computers and emails. So technology is driving all of this. And, uh, you know, but and globalization is an offshoot of technology, uh, at least the way it's being experienced today. So technology is the reason. And I can't believe even Hanara's group are not, is not talking about that. They seem to be stuck in a, a, a very industrial era mindset, uh, despite I love them to death and they are a huge inspiration in me sort of um, becoming an activist. But when I thought about that national share, national share of income changing, and it's changing similar patterns in Canada and the UK, just uh, it's not far behind what's happened in the US. I mean, it's inevitable. I mean, just you just draw a line on those charts a few decades into the future, and it's inevitable. And I challenge any listener here to think about what what's coming down the pipe that could change that. And I don't think I don't think uh, a lot of the policies being discussed today, uh, which are based on what worked in the past, are going to work anymore. Because fundamentally, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we were not rebalancing the global labor market. You know, labor markets were fairly closed. Maybe it was more of a closed equilibrium system back then. 
but, but now we are still in the middle of a global rebalancing in labor and wages. So until one day we have income convergence, where the whole planet's making around the same incomes, so at least those who, who can get educated to certain jobs, we're not going to see a lot of wage growth here. And I know from my own experience that the global middle class is roughly around $30,000 a year. That's not a median middle class income. In, in, in so, so when you're competing with people who can have a middle class lifestyle in Brazil or, or in Serbia on 30000 a year, like what chance do we have? So that, and that's for information jobs. No tariffs. Not, Trump can't do nothing to stop people from hiring on Upwork for their you know, web design or for their transcription services. And then you have automation, AI. Let's take transcription. So really, I used to get transcripts done for the videos at our events. And if you do them locally with a uh, you know, local, you know, meaning in North America, good English writers can quick turnaround. It used to cost 30 to $40 an hour to do that, to pay for that. And uh, going offshore costs about $10, $12 an hour. And now there's AI services that, that can do it for a dollar an hour. And, and that's just one example of one kind of task. So automation and globalization, automation is, it's not just robots. It's, it's SaaS software. It's cloud-based services. It's anything that's driven by AI. And, and that is continuing to take more work away from people, which results in more people being underemployed, which is why wages probably aren't going up. Is, I think there's a big problem right now with underemployment, um, where people are just overqualified for what they're doing. And for some reason, no one's talking about that in the headlines either. So if you look at coming back again to that share of national income changing towards feudalistic levels, again, the, the mega trends that we're only halfway through, not even, I mean, AI is not even beginning, not even really started yet, are all going to make that way worse. So what the fuck are we going to do? <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think um, a dividend is what we need to do. Because the money's being made, just not to be made by most people. And I think we need to see that the gains from all this technological innovation are the shared inheritance of humanity. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that was the thesis of a TEDx talk I did recently. That's not, not live yet. But who invented the internet? I mean, Zuckerberg did it. Public financing did. And he's, he's a multi-billionaire because he, he was able to think about a solution people wanted at a particular period in time that you could, you could quickly build using web software, which was all open source and, and, and made for free anyway. And um, I think today's successes, most of today's millionaires and billionaires are building it off frankly, public, common, commonly owned good. But the gains are being concentrated. So I don't see a dividend, a freedom dividend, call it what you want. I don't see that as wealth redistribution. I see that as sharing in, in the gains that are, were commonly owned from the beginning that are based on the contributions of scientists and inventors and risk takers and, and politicians from, for hundreds of years. Yeah. So if, if capitalism can't evolve to implement some kind of basic taxation method where the gains are shared, even to just some basic level to, to end poverty, you know, it has to evolve that way. And it's not just like it's not just about ending poverty. Again, this was this was an this was an aspiration of Friedman's and Hayek from the Austrian School of Economics and and, and Nixon and, and in this in the late sixties it, it almost passed in the in the US government and only failed by a couple of votes. This is not just about, it's not about wealth redistribution. This is about capitalism evolving to its natural potential to end poverty and, and emancipate everyone and, and make technology really our shared inheritance as it should be. So I think that capitalism is missing its plumbing. 
the plumbing is, is to circulate money from the shared inheritance that is currently being concentrated for the betterment of everyone. And that's the kind of future that I think we need. And I think that, that will be not solve every problem, but it'll be, make every problem easier to solve. Because if people are not afraid, then I think they'll engage more in the problems that we have today. Mm -hmm. and, and see a little further into what they want the future to look like. Because, um, yeah, I, I think uh, we've gotten people so short-sighted into what they're going through day-to-day that they're not even seeing the, the massive um, implications of different things coming down the pike. Um, and, and yeah, that, that distribution layer, how concentrated it's getting, is, is becoming very dangerous uh, to the point where, um, yeah, we need to get our acts together um, or, or else there's two trajectories that I see in my head and one's very fruitful and abundant. <laughs> the other is like dystopia and not very uh, glamorous. And, and I have two little girls and, and I'm fighting for that future where it's a utopian view on what this world looks like. And so, cause you, you've gone, you, you started that CEO for basic income in Canada. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And then some of the challenges that from a governmental side of implementation um, may have, cause in Canada they had that, um, pilot program and then there was a swing in politics and whatnot and I think the guy pulled it out and lowered the price of beer or something like that was <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about that process of of going through that governmental side of things and curating all those CEOs around this kind of movement that that has been stirring up in Canada there yeah so um Canada is uh, usually ahead of the U.S. in terms of uh, progressive policies, <laughs> but uh, um, so what happened? There was a previous government, a left-leaning government in the province of Ontario, which uh, had implemented a pilot, the world's leading pilot. In fact, the only pilot, one of only two pilots in the world, of that really would have a lot to learn from. The other being the one in Kenya that Give Directly is doing right now, where twelve thousand people in three cohorts will be getting a long-term basic income in some cases. Um, Ontario was also a real basic income. It was really enough to cover basic needs where I think the uh, people in the lowest, it was actually negative income tax style where it was graduated amounts of money. The less you had, the more you got. Uh, and it phased out uh, as you made more money. So those who are in the, who are completely like not working, completely uh, in a bad place. I think we're getting like 18 or $20,000 Canadian a year which is, you know, is, is enough to make ends meet, uh, depending on how you structure things. And it was phasing out. So the, the working poor were also getting it, which is also really important facts about basic income is, uh, I mean, poverty, I, I think it, it eliminates the working poor. And, uh, you know, I think it creates a, a middle-class way of life for everyone. And, and that is capitalism's potential to do if we implement such a dividend. And that's really important to have a, basically to have a, uh, to, to no longer have a working poor and have a giant middle class and an, and a you know high income earners and rich people as well, like that's what we can have instead of poverty and and working poor, and then a, and then a, a increasingly shrinking middle class, uh, as an aside. But uh, so we had a real a real basic income here, four thousand people uh, in three parts of the province getting it, and uh, it kind of came out of nowhere because the previous government just announced it. Most people in Ontario had never even heard of basic income, 
So, you know, there's some really real progressives in that in the Liberal Party here who uh, want to test it. Um, unfortunately, they had some hiccups getting the implementation started. So it was, uh, by the time uh, the elections came around, the, the uh, pilot was only one year in. Um, and if, if, they had, if they had been able to move faster when they initially announced it, perhaps it would have been two or two years in or near completion. So the, uh, a new uh, uh, progressive conservative government got elected, which, uh, you know, I mean, at least they used to be progressive. They still have it in the name. And, uh, and they just cancel it just basically without warning. Although they, they had said they won't cancel it, they canceled it. And uh, it was a huge tragedy because um, 4,000 people suddenly thought they had income security for another, another two years, and then they didn't. And uh, although they gave them six months of, uh, of grace pay, you know, announced a month later after the people were scared of what they're going to do. And, uh, and they just canceled it without even the fact that most of the money had already been spent was allocated, including very savvy research teams that were going to be studying all this. They just canceled all of that. Like, and uh, so I was, I was really upset. And um, I had just started my first ever sabbatical in my whole life. Like I've never had more than two weeks off at once <laughs> since high school. And last summer, I was going to start three months off. And, and this happened three weeks in when I just started to relax. Imagine like working your whole life a certain way. And then suddenly, you can just start to relax. And uh, this happened. I'm like, shit, what am I going to do? I got to do something about this. And I thought, well, you know, what assets do I have? I'm like, well, I know a lot of other business leaders because I've been networking my whole life. And uh, I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if, if the business community showed up for the basic income and asked that the trial not be canceled? Because um, people seem to think that BI is some leftist pipe dream, when in reality, it's, it's very pro-capitalist and very good for the economy. It is an economic stimulus. Those who spend the least, who have the least spend the most, and it just keeps, keeps the economy working well and creates jobs. And um, I think a capitalism with a basic income will, will be far more effective and will be growing a lot faster, even long-term, once the, uh, the numbers balance out than one that doesn't have a basic income. So, so I thought this is an opportunity to, to share that, to get that narrative out while also perhaps trying to save the pilot. So me and uh, a colleague, Paul Vallée, who runs one of Canada's top AI consulting and product companies, just worked our network of every, every CEO we've ever met in our lives and, and managed to get 120 signatures on a letter that laid out the economic narratives for basic income. You can find that letter at ceosforbasicincome.ca. Um, and uh, so that's what we did. So in October 18th, we launched this letter. We had a press conference in partnership with the Green Party at the local government building. We were in the national news. We were in the in a local newspaper. And uh, it was uh, it, it seemed to get a lot of people's attention. The leader of the federal opposition party, the NDP, personally thanked one of the people in our group and then went on and called for more pilots the week after using language from our letter which is great because we managed to educate them on automation and all the points we put in the letter. And uh, we know that the, uh, that the leadership and the, the, the federal party, uh, the liberal party also read the letter. Uh, hopefully a lot of the conservatives read the letter because, uh, you know, I, I do think BI is actually a conservative idea. So I don't know what their opposition is. Mm -hmm. And um, that was, so that's what we did. So I think uh, at least we, they didn't cancel, they didn't reverse the cancellation of the pilot, but at least they, at least we were able to see these narratives, these these talking points that I think are very important that people need to understand that basic income is, is pro-growth, it's good for the economy, it's pro-free market. Uh, it, it'll lead to a, an, a more evolved form of capitalism. There's nothing to be afraid of here. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's, that's what we did.
Awesome. Well, thank you for the, yeah, I couldn't imagine on sabbatical and you're like getting an email or skim through the news and you get that through your phone or computer or whatever. And you're like, I could only imagine your heart sinking like, what? <laughs> Come on. Like, oh man. And then to actually just start hustling right away into it just shows the passion that you have. Um, because yeah, that is that to me is my biggest concern of a governmental um, implementation <clears throat> is the swing of wins, and it's like if you implement it and then you cancel it, and it could happen at a snap of a, a, a thumb, uh, how it could suppress a society even more. Um, so that's where I, I I see a free market approach being somewhat of a more of realistic approach if we can engrave it into a money supply. Um, I still think the quickest, easiest route to get meaningful money into the hands of the masses is through the government. But I think over time um, that may occur. Um, so do, do you see um, the hurdles of doing a governmental side of things slower than trying to do a free market or do you even see a need for a free market approach um to to help relieve and accelerate these discussions more um so they actually get their acts together <laughs> i think ultimately short term i do think a government is the most effective vehicle to implement this um because i mean once you get the first one elected that does it it's there and no one's going to take it away. I mean, right now in uh, Alaska, the uh, both liberals and conservatives were, were vying for the election to uh, preserve the freedom, um, sorry, the wealth, uh, uh, the permanent fund dividend they have there on oil revenues. And uh, it's, it's funny because the, the left-leaning approach to preserving the dividend from oil revenues uh, because they were having some budget shortfalls was to increase taxes. And the right-leaning approach to preserve the dividend was to cut services. So that's... Uh, <laughs> you know, much like how the world would be even without the dividend. But the dividend becomes a permanent fixture that people uh, want, is popular, they, they start to uh, to rely on and leverage. And then you just have the same old left-right arguments about budget cuts. And now you have a, a Republican government elected that wants to cut funding to important social programs instead of to the dividend. And so I hope that doesn't get spun into an anti-UBI story because it's not the case. That would be happening anyway, um, whether there's a dividend in place or not. But it just shows that once such a thing gets implemented, it will be very difficult to remove it and uh, because it already would have become a permanent part of uh, the functioning of the economy, which I don't think is something to be afraid of because we are already dependent on a lot of things to run the economy. We need roads. We need electricity. We need, we need a court system. So a, a dividend that ends poverty just becomes something, a public utility, like electricity or roads or airports, something that, that we just assume is a given mm -hmm. and, and something that's for the benefit of everyone. And nobody would say we should uh, start uh, you know, digging up roads because we need to cut, we need to like cut taxes. <laughs> it's just like nobody would say we should uh, reduce the, the freedom dividend uh, because we're in a, in a recession. In fact, it should be increased in a recession because it's a stimulus. Um, so I think I think government is long term the best way for this to be done, uh, or short term, any medium term anyway. Not long term, of course. I'm sure a lot of the uh, listeners of this podcast. I'm not sure if this is a crypto podcast or not. Is this a is this a crypto 
primarily podcaster? We, we have a pretty good uh, spectrum of people. Uh, something we're really proud of is like a lot of people don't even know about crypto that have got drawn okay. to mana. So we're the first interaction of crypto that they don't even touch other cryptos. <laughs> but And then we okay, have cool. a subset that is like the crypto airdrop people. Oh, so, so this is primary mana, at least listeners on this podcast, I guess, or? That that's the the general audience, and then it's expanding into different networks of different okay. that uh, are affiliated. So, yeah. So long term, okay. So uh, you can probably cut the last part if you want. Um, so I, I mentioned the government part. Now, very long term, I I do think uh, a monetary supply, crypto blockchain based approach. I mean, could change the face of planet Earth and and you know result in the you know the utopia that you know we're all working towards uh in the crypto community um but i think i don't really see how short term um or or even the medium term i think uh, you guys are doing really important work at mana uh but until there's a way to uh to establish a utilitarian value of, of this currency that's big enough to, to pay meaningful ubi I don't, I don't know how it's going to happen. And, and it seems that someone somewhere is going to have to give up profit motive in some sort of business model that is tied to a currency like mana in order for there be to be a funding model that is independent of a government. Mm-hmm. Um, because if, you know, if just like the U S dollar is somehow vaguely tied to oil, um, the, you know, if, if, if a cryptocurrency has to be tied to, to some sort of revenue or profit making thing, uh, in order for it to, to raise in value enough to pay meaningful meaningful amount of UBI. So someone's going to have to give up their profit at some stage or, or some new enlightened class of capitalists just somehow share something from their business models into, into a, a currency or else I just don't, I just don't see how it's going to happen. But I, I'm not a crypto expert. I'm not, I'm not even a in, intermediate level knowledge by any means. I just don't, I just don't understand how, how valuation will grow on, on a, on a crypto based UBI in the next 10 or 20 years based on the way the system works today. So I do think a government could implement UBI in the next 10 or 20 years faster than a uh, crypto project could, you know, um, unless again, you got the world's billionaires somehow dedicating all their wealth into a cryptocurrencies fund. And, and then it's actually backed by something that has a value and, mm-hmm. and can distribute from there. So I, I don't know. Otherwise I just don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you actually described it. Uh, quite well of like what um, at least the approach that we think is the only practical way to do it is to have a backing of uh, revenue generating businesses and profitable businesses to support it. Um, Because in the crypto space, it's pretty, pretty nasty uh, right now. Um, It still blows me away that I've gotten into this crazy world you know dedicated you know and sacrificed everything into this but um it's a, a mainly a speculation evaluation in a lot of these and i think we're going to go through a pretty nasty uh flush out of projects and the ones that are really trying to solve real uh problems will will come to fruition um and, and at least that's been our like you talked about the core values at the beginning of this podcast is like that's our main goal is like, how can we uh, solve poverty? How can we eliminate poverty? Because this isn't necessarily just a country to country issue. Um, this is a global, we're all brothers and sisters in this game together. 
and, and the technologies there, the innovations there. And if we all work towards common goals, we can, we can do amazing things as a species. Um, and just getting that attention focused on some of these problems um, and not just going day in, day out, fulfilling their basic needs and, and trying to solve these bigger problems, I think is, is what drives me. Because um, if we could close out um, that you could uh, give a little bit of um, what the future you're hopeful for and working towards and uh, to leave our audience with um, just something they could take home with and, and really think about of what they can do maybe in their day-to-day -day life to really make an impact into their communities. Um, if, if you could uh, share a bit of that, that would be much appreciated. I, I just, you, you have a wealth of knowledge that I have a huge amount of respect for and we could dive down different rabbit holes. So just again, thank you for, for coming on here, Floyd, and sharing your knowledge with us. that technologies are shared inheritance than implementing a dividend off of its gains, at least at some basic level, to end poverty, is not a socialist thing. It's not a left or right thing. It's very much a reciprocity thing. You know, who owns technology? You know, an entrepreneur can, can see a new way to package a solution to solve a problem and create value for society. Yes, but they're building off the commons. They're building off things that we commonly inherited at birth, meaning technology, the air, the, round, the oil, the, everything around us. So, so I don't think we should fall into the trap of seeing UBI as wealth redistribution. We should see it as rather, at the very least, a way to implement the missing plumbing out of capitalism to share in the gains that were, to share in the wealth that is being created and added back to the commons, to our common wealth, which is technology and the knowledge that we build off across generations. We're one product you know innovates and jams and gets better off of another product and that product innovates and gets jammed off of other things and even the iPhone today wouldn't exist without the public financing into academia that, that generated the early stage inventions that, that formed it and then inventions in theoretical physics and all these things that were publicly financed so I think we need to start seeing technology as our shared inheritance and implementing a dividend off of his gains, a piece of the capitalist plumbing that, that we should have implemented in the late 60s when, when even the biggest capitalist of them all was calling for it, like Milton Friedman and Hayek and, and Republicans in the government at the time. This is not some socialist thing. This is very much an evolution of capitalism. Even in the days when Cold War with communism, those were the days when people were, were, were we almost passed something like a basic income in the US. So like, <laughs> resist... These, these BS statements that UBI is socialist, because in the same year that half a million troops were sent to Vietnam to stop the spread of, of communism was the same year that, that a thousand economists in the U.S. signed a letter saying that a basic income is compatible with American values. Very good, yeah. Um, and the final piece I'll say on that, that maybe all the listeners can, can take this talking point forward, is that there was a time when having a job was a way to share in the gains. Because before the great decoupling, and please Google that if you don't know what it means, before the mid-70s when, when, when technology started tracking productivity, productivity was growing faster than wages and wages stopped growing. Until that time, we had 30 years where wages were growing in lockstep productivity.
So the more the economy was producing, the more people were needed to produce stuff, the higher wages went. Our wages were growing like 2.6% on average per year. Since then, they've been growing like nothing, almost zero. So there was a time when our imagination of what capitalism is, where we're just having a job is, is a way to benefit and, and, and grow and uh, take part in, in, in our, our gains. There was a time when that was true, but it's not true anymore. So it doesn't matter how hard you work, you're not going to get your share of the gains that are coming off of technology, which is our share of inheritance. So I think it's time for a dividend as a way to correct for that and make sure that, that our, our inheritance is being spread in a way that is to the benefit of everyone. So that's, that's the last thing I'll say. Awesome. Yeah, just how I, I comprehend that, that last little bit you say, uh, you say it really well, um, is that I think people tend to think that it's a, like you take away to pull something to give over here. But when you talk about wealth and value, is that there isn't necessarily an end point of how much wealth and value gets created. It, it, it's almost how I just went through it personally. I was asked, how much do you love your daughters, you know, and do you think you'll split your love between your new daughter now? And it's like, no, love just gets expanded. You just expand it. And it, that just sunk. And I started like crying, but like, oh my gosh, that's how it relates to all this is that it's all just an expansive thing of, of pushing humanity forward. And, and if we can inject hope into uh, people's lives that there is a bright future coming, then we're we're gonna we're gonna do some amazing things, and and it just starts little by little, and and just really take that I, I think away from this. If that was the the last thing, is is just that we can do this as a people, and and really uh, make this happen for for the next generations to come. So. Yeah, just thank you so much, Floyd. And uh, yeah, where can people learn more about um, uh, your company and, and you as a, because I know you do some blogging uh, every so often. Is there any places we can land people to learn more about um, CEOs for basic income? And, and the yeah, yeah, so so at CEOsforbasicincome.ca, you can read the letter that they wrote. Um, uh, Depending on when this uh, this podcast goes live, there's a there's a site up soon for uh, a nonprofit team that I, I put together in Canada that is promoting uh, pro growth economic narratives. You can you'll find that at ubiworks.ca and um, and as for me, yeah, just just Google. I'm the only Floyd Marinescu on the planet, so you'll, you'll, <laughs> I'm not really ma- I'm not maintaining my homepage very well. So Google is my homepage, I guess. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, sir so much for what you do thank you (laughs) thanks for listening to the hedge for humanity podcast if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe and give us a positive rating